Yep. We are. Okay, uh, welcome to the Edgar Rice Burroughs podcast. This is episode 10, uh, where we'll be discussing uh, Burroughs' 1915 novel, Pellucidor. Uh, my name is Tim DeForest. I'm the author of several books on pulp magazines, old-time radio, and other aspects of uh, pre-digital pop culture. I keep a blog at uh, uh, comics, old-time radio, and other cool stuff. And uh, with me are my two podcast partners. My name is Jess Terrell. You might know me from the Facebook discussion group for the love of all things Edgar Rice Burroughs. Little of Pop and I and better than 4,000 ERB fans are talking Edgar Rice Burroughs every day of the week in nights too. So come join us for the love of all things Edgar Rice Burroughs. And I'm Scott Stewart. Uh, I'm a ghostwriter and uh, uh, work with articles on other people and publications. But I do want to mention something slightly off topic, though it deals with the arts, and that is my old, oldest daughter uh, yesterday, her acting troupe uh, won the sectionals, so next week uh, they will be bringing their one-act play to uh, state competition. Cool. That's awesome. To- <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, proud papa here. <laughs> okay. Okay, and as I mentioned, we are talking about uh, Pellucidor, uh, the 1915 sequel to At the Earth's Core. Um, and it was published in All Story Cavalier Weekly uh, over, the, over four issues in May of 1915, republished as a book in 1923, uh, so there was a little bit of a gap there uh, before it was published as a hardcover. The hardcover book had J. Al- Allen St. John cover and some interior illustrations by St. John, one of uh, Burroughs' best illustrators. And it also included a really neat map of Pellucidor, uh, which, which uh, you know, is really handy to have by when you're reading this book. Uh, over the years, there have been a number of paperback reprints, uh, one with a great cover by Roy Krenkel and another by an equally great cover by Frank Frazetta. I would be very hard put myself to pick between those covers for which one is my favorite. Uh, it is in the public domain now, so it's available electronically uh, uh, under several sources, under for, for free under uh, a number of sources, and it is well worth reading. As I mentioned, it's a sequel to Athier's Core, which featured uh, our hero David Innes and his science, uh, his uh, scientist friend Abner Perry, in the Iron Mole, a device. Uh, designed to dig down into to the earth to facilitate mining operations. Uh, it worked a little better than they thought it would. It kept going down. They couldn't turn it, and it, they ended up in the under uh, the uh, the world of Pellucidor, underneath the Earth's core. Which uh, they had a series of adventures there, uh, which which culminated in uh, David uh, organizing a lot of the bigger human tribes to fight against the Mayhars, these pterodactyl-like creatures that are intelligent and have telepathic powers and were pretty much despotically ruling over mankind and often occasionally using humans for lunch. Um, so he's, he organizes them. He teaches them to use bows and arrows and teaches them some modern military um, uh, tactical stuff, uh, defeats the Mayhars in, uh, in some battles, it decides to take the Iron Mole back up to the surface, bringing his his wife, Dion the Beautiful, with him to get weapons and other supplies and bring technology to Pellucidor, to the human, uh, humans of Pellucidor. Um, unfortunately, uh, a bad guy named Huja the Sly One, who wanted Diane for, uh, Diane for herself, switched Diane out with a, with a captive Mayhar. So 
uh, David goes back to the surface without realizing he's got a evil, intelligent pterodactyl with him rather than his wife. Uh, I, Jess, I think you've got some things to say about that later. And uh, uh, he gets back to the surface. He, he ends up in the Sahara Desert because he doesn't go straight up and meets Edgar Rice Burroughs, who gets him the supplies he needs. Um, uh, uh, he gets some some friendly nat- uh, some friendly uh, uh, local tribe to help him reposition the iron mole, and he's uh, the, the book ends. He has gone back down into the uh, into the earth with a supply of rifles and ammunition and other modern uh, modern stuff to bring not just to help beat the Mayhars in war, but to bring techno- the peaceful technology uh, to the humans of the of the underworld as well, and that is where. Pelucidor picks up, and Jess, you were going to cover uh, the first five chapters. Indeed, and before I get into that, uh, I've got a short list of who's who and where's where of these first five chapters. I like to keep track of the roster. I like to know who the players are. I guess that's a sports fan in me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I will go through these slowly, and uh, perhaps we can include a list uh, of these in our attachments. I can we can talk about that perhaps include a list of these in our attachments with the podcast if that's possible i think we can yes very good a Pelucidor is the subterranean world some 500 miles below the surface of the earth as tim said it has roughly and i double checked this uh burrow's cyclopedia page 258 and another source roughly 124 million square miles of land surface most of that is unexplored uh it does include dinosaurs and and wild mammals such as mammoths and uh, parrots or saber-tooths, as well as other beasts that just love to eat human beings. Uh, think of Pelucidor as a world within a hollow world. Uh, so it, it, it is the uh, Apollo Earth theory come to life and, and not Jules Verne's journey to the center of the Earth is, is a well-known story about the hollow Earth, but the Jules Verne story, in my opinion, uh, does not have as much, uh, shall we say, adventure with all the various uh, uh, animals that the Burroughs story has. That's, that's my opinion. I, I kind of agree. It's a wonderful novel in its own right, but the, but it doesn't have the action uh, that Burroughs has and has kind of a hero who whines a lot about how dangerous it is. It gets kind of tiresome. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, correct. <laughs> um, I'll, 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 I won't continue that topic. Mm-hmm. I was but some of the other who's who for this Pelucidor story, this is the second book in the series, David Ennis, who's the hero and protagonist, he's established, he was established the emperor of Pelucidor at the end of the first book. I think possibly just for simple purposes, you might equate that, and fellows, uh, Tim, Scott, jump in here if you like, uh, you might equate uh, David Ennis's position as emperor to that of John Carter's position as warlord over on Barsoom. In both cases, they came in they unified a world where everyone was fighting and fussing and not getting all the various tribes and, and groups and, and nations were not getting along. In both cases, Innocent and John Carter united the world, their respective worlds of Lucidor and Barsoom, and uh, fought a common foe. And after that, there was relationships and trade and, and some level of peace. Um, I think that's actually a great comparison uh, because it's true that both on Mars, on Barsoom with John Carter and on Pelucidor, the individual tribes or cities maintain their own autonomy. They have their own governments and their own people in charge, but they all 
uh, have fealty to uh, either John Carter or to David as the emperor. Um, so they don't lose their national identity, but they have this uh, kind of alliance to their mutual benefit. Uh, autonomy, maintaining autonomy and alliances are two key words there I should mm -hmm. have included. Those are great points. Yes, these countries don't lose their independence. They mm -hmm. still conduct business as they see fit. They just have agreements to get along with each other and with other countries and to cooperate. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, other um, principle, another principal character in the Palooster stories is Diane or Deanne, the beautiful uh, heroine, damsel. But, uh, but I'm not going to say damsel in distress because the young lady can't take care of herself. Mm -hmm. She can hold her own with a sister, and, and uh, I would not want to mess with her. That's, that's Deanne the Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Abner Perry, of course, is the uh, friend, dear friend, <laughs> and the inventor of the Iron Mole, and the inventor of about anything you need, whether it's a battleship or gunpowder or a printing press, he, he can put it together. Our, our favorite villains in, in the Blooster series, and certainly very prominent in the Blooster book, is are the Mayhars. We've established them as reptilian villains. Uh, I think of them as a little bit like an advanced form of the pterodactyl. Uh, that may not be accurate, but that's the way I see them. Uh, be that as it may, they have hypnotic powers and a taste for human flesh. And as I've often said in my Facebook discussion group, and I know I mentioned it in our prior podcast on that, the Earth's core, uh, I think one of the most chilling scenes that Burroughs wrote was his description of a victim held motionless by the Mayhar's hypnotic powers and being slowly devoured one body part at a time. There's some artwork on that. Frazetta took two angles on on that scene, two different depictions, both of which I greatly uh, admire. And other artists, uh, Joe Jusco, also tackled that and did a fine job. Mm -hmm. uh, and some other artists as well. So uh, look around for that. If you can't find it, feel free to check with me. And for the love of all things Edgar Rice Girls, I'll point you some samples. Um, Making a very brief appearance in this book, really just part of the opening framing device, is Cogden Nestor. He was uh, a, a hunter or a traveler uh, in northern Africa, and he found a telegraph in the desert. That's the telegraph that uh, David Ennis strung all the way from Blooster up to the surface world. So that's a really long wire. Mm -hmm. um, also, in some of these stories, if you're familiar with them, if you're not, then I really need to mention this. There is what fans call the other ERB. Edgar Rice Burroughs is a real-life human being who wrote 70-some-odd books, including 24, 25 Tarzan books and and these, uh, what, six or seven uh, Flooster books, as well as the Barthoon books and other books. But appearing in his some of his stories is what fans call the other ERB. And, and this is a fictional version of Edgar Rice Burroughs who actually takes part in the story generally in the first chapter or the prologue, generally interacting with the, the protagonist or lead character just to get the story and then and it takes on the chore of, of transcribing it, recording it for us all to enjoy. So we call him the other ERB and he does make an appearance very early in the story. In fact, that Cogden Nestor fella I mentioned is the guy who, when he finds that telegraph in the desert, is the guy who contacts the other ERB. Yeah, and that 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 version of Edgar Rice Burroughs is the luckiest guy in the world. He just <laughs> he just happens to be in the Sahara Desert when the Iron Bull shows up again. He he happened to know a guy who knew a guy who knew Tarzan. He happened to be the nephew of John Carter and got stories that way. Uh, he happened to be an old schoolmate of Bo and Tyler, and so got the land, the Land of Time Forgot story from that from that source. And uh, uh, he's it, you know he's just like 
walks down the street and another story of an adventure falls in his lap. Uh, so, so positive that pays to know people, and he certainly did. Yes. And, of course, there's a part of my brain which considers all these things true stories, in which case Edgar Rice Burroughs is more a great historian than a great fiction writer. So, oh, I would agree with that. I, I, I really believe that someplace there's an alternate universe where all these things are real. Yeah. Uh, and I hope to visit there someday. Mm -hmm. Now, I've also got in, in my list here of who's who and where's where, I also have some locations. One of the principal nations in, in, in Pellucidor is uh, Sari. S-A-R-I or Sari. How do you all pronounce that? I think I say Sari, but who knows? Well, I'm going to attempt to say sorry, Sari. That's the way I used to pronounce it. Today I started saying Sari with no uh, <laughs> intention of uh, disparaging the, the mm -hmm. fine nation of, of Sari. I just mm -hmm. am pronouncing it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, that's David and Diane's adopted home as the seat of, the, of their empire in Pellucidor. Now, henchmen to those reptilian villains, the Mayhards that we spoke of uh, a moment ago, it's the Sagoths, who are described as gorilla men, and I would call them a little dim-witted henchmen of the Mayhars, but you have to also consider, now, now in, in the Tarzan stories, not really related to this, but gorillas there do not have the, the, the brain power of, um, do not have the brain power of the Mangani, and the Mangani, of course, are, are, are not, or two below human beings. Mm -hmm. But also, though, these Sagoths are constantly being controlled mentally, by the Mayhars, so their minds may not even have an opportunity to develop. So just keep that in mind when I call them dim with it. It may not be their fault. <laughs> uh, another villain, and he appeared in the first one. Oh, by the way, there are surnames attached to a number of these people, mm -hmm. and this is really useful. It gives you a quick idea of, gee whiz, what's this person's particular purpose, or what is he known for? Hoja, or Hoja, the Slavin, H-O-O-J-A, mm -hmm. Hoja the Slavin, is the villain from the first book, who also comes into play here. Mm -hmm. uh, Dator, the strong one, Dator, D-A-C-O-R, is Diane, the beautiful brother. That, that's useful to know. Uh, Gak, the hairy one, is the king of Theri and is a, a good friend of David. Amaz, A-M-O-Z, is the original home of Diane, the beautiful. She later relocated to Theri um, with David when the empire was established and they got married. Uh, the Laurel As, which will be mentioned in the story, is the northwest portion of the sea. It's just south of the Bandar As. And that is on the map that you refer to. And by the way, I'm going to be sure to mention, um, with the recently released within the last year or two, 100-year art chronology by Michael Tierney, there was a very good Pellucidor map um, that was made available with that. You can probably still find that map, uh, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, one day I intend to establish a map room, and that map will be in there. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I like, I get lost in these. <laughs> we'll talk about being lost. <laughs> I get lost in these places. It's good to know my way around. In fact, there's emphasis on creating a map as soon as David gets back to Blooster, which I'll get to the story here in just a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, the Mountains of the Clouds are a mighty mountain range just south of, of Putra. That's T H U T R A, Putra. Now, Putra, I'm also explaining that, is a major underground city controlled by the Mayhawks. And I must call your attention to some of the fine artwork for Brewster. Jamie Chase has, has done, uh, he did, with uh, Bobby Nash. Did do a fine book devoted to Ethereum's core. Mr. Chase has done additional artwork devoted to Brewster. And I know he has some images of Futra, which are, I think, quite interesting, quite good. So I recommend you look, look up his work. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, Anarok is another city, or rather a, a country, where besides John, the Mazoff, he's a Travis chief and another friend of David's, we'll mention him. Mazoffs are a red-skinned seafaring race, uh, fishermen, hunters, they're similar to, in appearance to Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and last but not least, this Mahar who, who accidentally makes a trip to the surface world with David in the in the iron mold, which we mentioned, which we'll cover here as I get into the story. That Mayhar is named to Alsa. Those are hyphenated, P-U-A-L-S-A to Alsa. Uh, that's the Mayhar that David accidentally took to the outer world at the end of that verse four. Uh, moving into the prologue. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, the other boroughs, he gets a, a, a letter from, and this is, of course, this is in the late ni- late 19 teens. Mm-hmm. So there's no no cell phones, uh, hardly uh, no no telephones, um, no emails, none of that stuff. He gets a letter. Master, <laughs> who's over in Algiers, he Master had read at their store, and he was familiar with this. So so he Master encounters something, and he writes a letter to the other major white folks, these fictional boroughs. Uh, Nestor says he's in the Sahara and he found a box buried in the sand that was clicking out Morse code signals. And the wires disappeared deep in the sand. And there were initials EI written on a piece of paper. DI. Morse code. Sahara. Gee, I wonder who that could be. <laughs> Nestor recalls from his reading at the Earth's Corps the story of David Ennis, and he remembered Plucer and that there was a box buried in the sand in the Sahara. Uh, similar to a message in the in, in the bottle, but this box is making noise. So Nestor cannot believe this could be from Ennis, so he writes to Burroughs and says, the other Burroughs, uh, and says, please confirm the story of at the Earth's core. And ask, he asks if this fiction or fact. Well, since the other Burroughs is living in the fictional world, he responds to a cablegram, story true, awakening out here. So Burroughs gets gets to Northern Africa with Nestor and brings the Morse code operator with him, and they decipher the message from the box. For two months, for two months, the other boroughs transcribes the further adventures of David Ennis at the Earth's core, which takes us to the book Pluster. You think I was ever going to get there, did you? <laughs> okay. chapter, chapter one, Lost on Pluster. Now, for just a moment, I would not call this a rant, but let me point out something. Uh, as we have established at the tail end of, of the last book at the Earth's core, accidentally, through the deviousness of, um, of um, Huja. Huja the Slap. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out how to pronounce it. Hooch of the mm-hmm. Slywin. There is a Mayhar that rides on board the Iron Mole with David. Mm-hmm. Now, Hooja had swapped out, had replaced Diane the Beautiful with that Mayhar. He pulled a little trick on David. Ha ha. Um, but no one thought it was really funny, particularly David. <laughs> but, but one thing here I need to point out is that Burl's books... Are, have many lessons, and of course, these books, at least in my day, were read by, by teenagers who are growing up. You figure out who you are and what the world is about. There are many lessons in Burroughs' books about principles and doing the right thing and taking action, appreciation for nature, and taking care of yourself, and how to conduct yourself in, 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 in society. But here is a vital lesson for all guys to always be attentive to the little lady. <laughs> Make sure she's okay. Talk with her. Listen. Do listen to her and make certain she is who she's supposed to be before you leave. Okay, so that's just good advice that Burroughs gives you here free of charge. 
Yeah, and it's actually interesting. The trip up to the surface would have taken some hours. And at some point, you go through an area where it's very hot and other where it's very cold and all that. So did David ever bother to comfort Diane or ask how she's doing during that whole trip? You know, I mean, the, his inattentiveness really reaches epic levels. Exactly. That's exactly my point. I mean, yeah. she's never been. This is his third trip. Mm-hmm. She's never been in the Iron Bowl. She's never been around any machinery whatsoever. Is I think I think of this thing first like a gigantic um, uh bulldozer with a big drill on it it's making all kinds of racket we know it gets hot in there because they were watching the temperature gauge very closely on their first trip down there that's well documented uh he doesn't apparently doesn't talk to her at all yeah so yeah being being attentive and i think that's the vital lesson here that burroughs is telling all these guys is to pay attention to the little lady check on her every once in a while yeah <laughs> you'll yeah. be glad you yeah, it's probably it's probably you could probably get by with not see not noticing she has a no hair a, a new hairdo. But if you don't notice she's been replaced by an evil pterodactyl, that then then yeah then your relationship needs some work. Very so. good, well said, well said. <laughs> so 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 Ennis has got he's got his, Ennis is telling the story here to Burroughs. So Burroughs is off transcribing someplace. So now here's the story. Um, Dennis is ready to go back to the police jury. He's got the iron mole in the desert. He gets some of the local fellows to help him uh, point the thing in the right direction. Now, this posed the question to me, just how heavy is the iron mole? Uh, how many people does it take to move the iron mole? At the very least, as I said, it's as heavy as a good-sized bulldozer with a giant drill. And that's my description. That's not out of the book. I checked. There's nothing in the books that I could find that gave us any real dimensions on that iron mole. You can look at the movie at the Earth's core with uh, Doug McClure and the great Peter Cushing, and you see how big their iron mole was, well, I, I think that might be a, a good idea that that's one heavy machine. So he had to have a lot of people give him a hand turning this thing around. So he takes the Mayhar with him, and the Mayhar is supposed to, oh, this is another thing I want to point out. The Mayhar supposedly is behaving itself. Now, there are some stories, I believe, in the, some of the Sunday comics Maybe I did not look this up, but perhaps in the Russ Manning Sunday comics. I'd be glad to research this if anybody's interested. Just contact me on my Facebook group. Um, that that perhaps this may hire, they have strong hypnotic mental powers, and we've established that we've seen them in action. They can freeze, they can freeze their victim under the most dire of circumstances. That's well documented. Mm-hmm. So it's not impossible, in my opinion, my opinion, that the Mayhar could have pulled a fast one on Ennis. And, and and actually escaped while they were on the surface surface world, and Ennis didn't even know it. He thinks the Mayhar's still riding around with him. <laughs> uh, apparently, that did not happen from an event that we'll see later on here in the story. But that possibility is explored in some story. Now, I'm thinking some of the Sunday comics. And of course, Mayhar gets loose on the surface world. That's one of the greatest fears that everyone associated Looster has, uh, because that would just be open season for Mayhar yeah. to start controlling people. Maybe, maybe he clouded David's uh, mind while they were traveling back to the surface. Maybe, maybe that's why he wasn't attentive. Oh, I got to remember that excuse next time I don't notice something about Angela. Well, a mayor clouded my clouded my mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, not long ago, in the current online comic written by Chuck. Dixon, they did a story arc of a Mayhar getting to the surface, and uh-huh. David had to go up after him and get some help of some, uh, you know, French foreign legionnaires to stop it before it, you know, formed a hypnotically controlled army and took over the world. So, yes, 
you're exactly right. That that, that is true. And I, I meant to, I meant to mention that book comic also, mm. uh, but I'm pretty sure there's another story someplace where this is covered. Go ahead. Do you have something else? I, I was just going to say that the implication is that once he got to the surface and realized it was a Mayher, and Hoja had probably had it tied up when he stuck it aboard, he probably had to have kept it a captive and maybe even kept it blindfolded or something to keep it from hypnotizing anybody. Uh, it may never have left the Iron Mole. Well, I would hope not. You open the door and let that thing out and it starts flapping those things. <laughs> yeah, on. yeah, that's true. Uh, so, where am I? So, taking the Mayhar with him in his pilot, the prospector for 72 hours until the vehicle finally emerged a few hundred yards from an ocean lit by the perpetual, perpetual midday sun. Mm -hmm. David looks around, waxes poetic about the appeal of Flooster, and proclaims he is home. So, you can see he's accepted Flooster as his home. Mm -hmm. He's lost, but he's <laughs> accepted Flooster as his home because he is definitely lost. He does not know where in Flooster he is. Mm -hmm. The Mayhar emerges. Soaks, and this is a beautifully written passage about the Mayhar emerging, soaking itself in the Pellucidarian Sea in a blind <laughs> way. It's really nicely written. I could just picture it with no problem whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And no att attempt to stop the Mayhar. And to his credit, he had the opportunity to kill that creature at any point they could have. I mean, any point on the trip. That would have been the first impulse. They did not. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it was a, a case of uh, humanity or, or, or compassion. Yeah, it's, it's an important insight into David's characters because all of Burroughs' heroes are violent people when they need to be. But <coughs> this, this shows that, that David is a moral person. He'll fight in self-defense or defense of those he cares for or to protect mm -hmm. humanity, but he won't fight or kill just to do so, not even in revenge, not even when he's arguably justified in this case. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, And it's very much to his credit. Well, very well said. That's another of those principles and thoughtful lessons that Burroughs gives us in his writing. Mm -hmm. um, let me also note that there's artwork by Tom Floyd, for the, and you see it on the Bison edition of the Blooster book of that very scene. Davis just arrived back in Blooster. There's the Iron Mole sitting there on the cover, and he's got his gun in his hand. He watches that Mayhar fly off. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's got the Dead Moon, one of my favorite places to visit, uh, hanging overhead. And I really recommend taking a look at the Tom Floyd artwork. J. Allen St. John also did a uh, version of the same scene. Mm -hmm. So now, now he's in Pellucer. The Mayhar's gone. Doesn't have to worry about that. So David starts using his compass. He points it to the sea, and David begins drawing a map. Well, I do like my map. I certainly understand the need for a map of Pellucer because he needs to find his way around. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought perhaps, and there's nothing in the book that I could find, I thought perhaps that a compass would not work in Pellucer for whatever reason. Strange things do happen, but there was no mention of that. So presumably the, the compass does work properly. Yeah, I guess it would still pick up magnetic north even if you're underground. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I reckon that's the case. Mm. Um, I thought I, I, I was thinking either that or maybe that, that I don't know, because you're coming out from a different angle, magnetic north would, would, would be someplace else. Yeah. Be that they, the compass apparently works, and he's using that to draw his map. And we'll hear mention this map here again. Uh, and I've, I've already mentioned, I've got a new there, but I've already mentioned the Blue map by uh, Mike Kearney mm -hmm. for his 100 year Edgar Rice Burroughs art chronology. Um, and, I, and I helped him locate an island together, so I took great delight in that. It was an island in Blue Star Cool. Um, um, now, so David 
now now that he's got now that he's in Pulister, he he loads himself up with ammunition, pedometers, and other necessities. He heads south with the blind hope of finding Terry. That's Diane's home, his home, their adopted home, and the seat of his empire. Through jungles, forests, and mighty mountains, he searched days, perhaps months, never seeing human beings. Then one day, Ennis is startled by the cries of human and sees the old man pursued by a dozen Sagoths. And as I've established, the Sagoths are a species of gorilla men who serve as the henchmen of the Mayhawk. Ennis is shocked to find he has discovered Abner Terry. All right, Burroughs is also known for coincidences, so this. By my count, coincidence number one um, um, in in this book. But I tell you, in my opinion, it's a sorry sight seeing an old guy be lost, mm-hmm. and it's just not very interesting. So as a reader, I was very grateful that coincidence occurred. <laughs> so, shoots. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that it it really is amazing how throughout his books. Burroughs is able to get away with using coincidence as much as he does, and it almost never—it's almost never seems contrived or bothersome. He just moves the story along so efficiently and so quickly <laughs> that you just accept these things as, as the way they are. I agree. I, in fact, I feel very uh, awkward even pointing out coincidences because I don't think that. And for Burroughs, they work. Yeah. And I don't see harm whatsoever. Of course, I've been reading these stories for a long time. I accepted them a long time ago. This never troubled me whatsoever. Another writer, another genre, I might fuss at mm-hmm. or, or look down my nose. But Burroughs, he makes it work. He makes it work very well. And I, for one, am glad he does so we can get on with the story. Yeah, I agree. Let's see here. So Ennis shoots, so he's, Ennis sees Abner Perry, there's some Sagos with him. Ennis shoots the first Sagos with his express rifle, then uses his revolver to shoot the second. Four shots are fired, four Sagos. Fall, it's like shooting Sagos in ring there. Mm-hmm. The remaining six Sagos hesitate, then take off and run. Perry throws his arms around Ennis's neck and weeps like a child. Very glad to see him understand. <clears throat> uh, note that names, okay, we talked about the useful surname in, mm-hmm. uh, on, on names. I've already mentioned that now. Moving into chapter two, Traveling with Terror, uh, Perry brings David up to date on the events that occurred while. David is on the surface world and also explains how he came to be pursued by Sagos. Who did the sly one that told Gak the hairy one, like these surnames, and Decor the strong one, that's Diane's brother, and Gak good friend of David, uh, and Gak was the leader of the country, of course, the planet of the country, Seri. Huja uh, told them that David had no intention of returning to Clooster and had intentionally left Diane behind. Note that Dick Carter is Diane's brother. Yeah, I've got that. Covered that. When war broke out between Sari and Amaz, the Mayhars regrouped and attacked each tribe in succession, defeating all against Sari and Amaz. Defeating all except Sari and Amaz. I, mean, I kind of wonder if the mind control, if the Mayhars didn't spark that war in some some fashion, but the book does not say that. This speculation. Yeah. I actually, I actually think it kind of makes sense because David was the driving force before, b- between uh, informing the empire and was and as the emperor was the was the glue that held it together. It mm-hmm. actually kind of makes sense until there was time to defeat the Mayhars completely and organize something more that his disappearance would cause the empire to fall apart. Um, it was too new a thing to exist without him. Mm-hmm. Um. So. During all of this, 
Diane the Beautiful and Pooja the Sly wouldn't disappear. Gee, I wonder how that happened. Mm-hmm. Pooja has an established uh, past behavior of kidnapping Diane. He's at it again. Mm-hmm. So Perry traveled to Amaz in search of Diane and fled when Hooja's uh, henchmen turned the people of Amaz against him. Then while returning to Perry, uh, Perry was pursued by Sagos. Innocent Perry retraced her steps to the prospector while returning to Sari. Oh, thank you. Innocent Perry retraced her steps to the prospector using David's map. That's better. Perry changed the modern clothes and weapons. Then they journeyed to the landmark. This is the Mountains of the Clouds. And then from there to the island of Anarok, where resides Jai the Mazov, tribal chief, and David's friend. If you recall, I think I said the Mazovs were akin in their appearance to American Indians. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, were known to be good fishermen and, and good hunters. Unfortunately, David and <coughs> Abner are on the wrong side of the mountain range. They decide to cross the mountain range. Well, they're in mountains, and there's snow up in those mountains. They sh- they kill a shaggy mountain bear to provide the warm clothing that they need. They were not prepared for mountain climbing in the, in the snow. They encounter several bears and wolves and do battles with them, and they're looking for a pass through the mountains. During all this, I'm reminded of Jack London's To Build a Fire, where hypothermia and extreme cold proved fatal. That's the very thing, they're, the very possibility they're dealing with. But they were not initially outfitted for this. They've got their hair, hair coats now. But um, they're lost, and they're trying to find the passage, and they may run out of time before they make their way through there. So in a dense fog trailed by two bears, after Perry is frightened by the roar of a bear, and takes off running blind into the fog. Perry disappears and does not respond to David's call. David Ennis is alone in the frigid, impenetrable fog, certain that Perry lies at the icy bottom of the crypts. So as we enter chapter 3, shooting the shoots and after, uh, David is sad, lonely, and upset. He's still reeling from the loss of Abner Perry. David is attempting to make his way over the Great Divide. In the dense fog, he falls down. He falls and slides down an icy slope with breakneck speed for several thousand feet. At the bottom of that slope, he finds Abner Perry alive and unharmed. This mm-hmm. may be called coincidence number two, but once again, this reader welcomes it. They yeah. journey down <laughs> toward the now visible Lural As, and that's the northwest portion of the sea. We mentioned that at the beginning of this uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. They follow a river for three long marches to the sea, and there with short axes and hunting knives, they construct a 40 by 10 foot flat bottom boat with 10 foot size. As an afterthought, they add four masts to produce a sailing vessel named the Sari, S-A-R-I, just like the country. When launched, the boat immediately capsizes, so they they get it drained out, they load it with some ballast, and then it floats. A single mast is constructed with a light sail, planking is fastened over the ballast to produce the first deck, and the second deck is added some four feet above the first deck. Holes are placed in the upper sides to permit firing on the enemy. After a safe launch, they begin a peace, peaceful journey floating away. That gets us to chapter four, Friendship and Treachery. The Sari, that boat I just described, was attacked by unfriendly Mesops, the red-skinned warriors and the Native Americans. Uh, the Mesops are in canoes, but David's revolver turns them away. So Perry is all excited and thrilled with this victory. He calls it a glorious victory in the history of Pellucidra. Uh, David says that Perry is the, I think David thinks that Abner Perry is overreacting a little bit. And he says that Perry is the only male coward he could ever respect and love. Mm-hmm. 
So using their compass, they continue on their way, mapping Blister. When they meet the Mazops of the hidden tree village of the Chieftain Ja on Anarok, Ja is glad to see them again and helps them fill in their map. Uh, John makes use of the town. Pelusdarians, people who were born there and lived there, have a homing instinct. David, I didn't mention this early on, this is how he got lost. He's not from Pelusdarians, he does not have that homing instinct. But the native Pelusdarians depend on the homing instinct so they can get back and forth. So they can go to the town and go to the store. But, I mean, so they can so they can navigate and make their way around the country. It's very natural to them. It's second nature. They think nothing of it. But someone coming from a service world does not have this. And in fact, thinking about that podcast, thinking about that uh, webcomic, mm-hmm. the Edgar Rice Burroughs webcomic for Blooster, when um, David Ennis in that webcomic goes to the surface world, he's done this at least once, maybe twice, he takes some, a native Bloosterian with him mm-hmm. uh, so that he can't find his way when he gets back and nothing else. Uh, yeah, it's it's wasn't until he showed up with the with the compass and the pedometers and the ability to start mapping that he had any chance at all of ever finding himself or finding his way around. True. Mm-hmm. True. So, so they continue mapping Pelusdor. They meet the Mazops and the Hidden Tree Valley to the Chiefs and Ja. Ja's glad to see them. Helps, helps fill in the map. Mm-hmm. David proceeds to Sari to continue his search for Diane. He and a few Mazop companions are stopped by Sega. These are the gorilla henchmen of the Mayhars. And Sagos and Mazops get along. There's kind of a truth between them. So, no harsh words were exchanged. Everyone went about their business. However, however, mm-hmm. the Sagos did return Charlie to capture David and killed the Mazop friends. So much for the truth. Mm-hmm. David is taken by these Sagos. David is taken to Putra, P-H-U-T-R-A. That is an underground city belonging to the Mayhars where the Mayhars tell him they will spare his life if he returns a great secret to them. Now, this great secret is a manuscript or a book that explains their method of artificial propagation. Uh, it was uh, taken by David uh, when he and Abner were held prisoner by the Mayhars, and David hid it in a cave where only he, maybe Diane, knew where the book was. So apparently the Mayhars only have one copy of this book and it is missing. <coughs> David refused <coughs> pardon me. David refuses, so he's taken to the pits for section. Chapter five, surprise. And David finds himself in the arena of the Mayhars. So he fights a terror. That's a huge saber toothed tiger of Booster. And beside him is a girl fighting with him, who just happens to be Diane the Beautiful. Mm-hmm. His wife. Yeah. <laughs> Another coincidence. We'll mark that one down as coincidence number three. Mm-hmm. And once again, this reader is glad of it. Yeah. Um, using his revolvers. Hang on. Well, yeah. I'll take a moment to note that you know, they didn't take his revolver away because they didn't know what it was. They didn't know it was a weapon. And the theme of using modern technology uh, in Pellucidar, the advantage of that is, is used throughout the novel. And this is just another example of it. Um, they, the Mayhars didn't even know it was a weapon. Neither did Sagos. So they let him carry it. And so it's there when he needs it. Um, so modern technology from the surface world keeps coming back to help to help David all through the novel. Very good point. 
Um, using his revolvers, now, which he still has, David holds the saber tooth off. And then the Mayhars send in three hip darts. These, that's the Pelucidarian world word for pterodactyls. Mm-hmm. As the reader, I remember, I do remember the first time I read, I read this, and I see these three uh, pterodactyl hip darts coming in. I thought, man, it's just gone from bad to worse. Mm-hmm. But the unexpected happens. The Thiptars pick up the Tarek and they carry it away, take it out of the arena. So the threat's been eliminated. It's it's taken flight. Really. There is some really good artwork. I really enjoy it by Frank Frazetta of this scene, and I highly recommend that. Yeah. That is, that, yep that was that was used on uh, on the paperback <coughs> edition that used Frazetta's art, the Ace paperback. Used that Frank. scene, his his portrayal of that scene, and. Uh, it is, it is a wonderful cover. Very good. Uh, David and Diane are saved because to Alsa, that's the Mayhar that uh, hitched the ride with David in the Iron Mold to surface and back. To Alsa wants to repay David for bringing her back to Pelooster. So in reading, when this popped up, then I thought in the story, well, I thought, well, maybe the Mayhar did not pull fast and, and really did. Uh, return from the surface world with David. It's mm-hmm. certainly suggested, I think, by this event. Uh, the Mayhars still want to return to their book The Great Secret, the one copy they've got, and they don't have it because it's been taken. Diane tells David to give that book to them because he, David, can produce superior weapons that could destroy the Mayhars. So her reasoning really is pretty sound. I don't think he had considered that until she pointed it out. out there. Mm-hmm. So David agrees to give he agrees to go with 100 Segoths to find the cave, Rule Valley, where he left the Book of Secrets. Uh, but meanwhile, Diane is held hostage until he comes back with his book. On the way, he manages to retrieve his express rifle, where it was left on the ground in his capture, talking about the impact of technology. Now he has a real weapon mm-hmm. on top of his pistols. So, so uh, call that coincidence number four, if you will. But he meets some human beings, explain their mystery to them, but when they arrive at the cave, they find that the manuscript, the Book of Secrets, is gone. Back at Putra, they discover, when they return there, they discover that Huja the Slywin has returned the Book of Secrets to the Mayhars in exchange for Diane. Well, the, the Mayhars didn't care who their agreement was with. Their top priority, their objective was to get that book back. So what if Huja brought it back instead of David? Big deal. Mm-hmm. They got their book, they're happy. Uh, in fact, David and Diane Hooter should be awful glad that they're still alive. They usually don't mess around. Mm-hmm. And that concludes Chapter 5 by Mike. Yep. And one thing I wanted to say, it's really interesting. In, in At the Earth's Core, the Mayhars are just totally evil. Um, and here... <laughs> Uh, Burroughs kind of gives them more depth of character they're, they're, as individuals and in, in their culture. They're capable of showing gratitude, and they do have a sense of honor to it. They do keep their word. You know, they give Diane back to Huja instead, but it was part of keeping the promise they had made by their lights. So he makes the Mayhars more three-dimensional here and probably more interesting. They're still villains, and David recognizes they still need to be defeated to keep humanity safe. But... They're not the just uh, one-dimensional evil creatures they were in, in at, at the Earth's core. There's a lot more depth to them, and they're a lot more interesting because of that, I think. That's a very good point. And I, and I would add to that that the Mayhars really look down their noses at human beings. Mm-hmm. Gilak, they called them. G-I-L-A-K, Gilak. Yeah. <laughs> really thought they were not much more than cattle, or as we would regard cattle, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but certainly, 
David's empire, the, the war that they fought against the Mahars, and and they're riding the iron roller going to the surface from back. Mm-hmm. Even if the Mahar got to look out the window, it probably was shocking what it saw. So they may have that may those things, those events may have uh, enabled the Mahars to uh, develop a new respect for human beings, or mm-hmm. Gilak, as they call it. But your point is well taken. Mm-hmm. Yep, and. Uh... Um, I also want to say that, well, of course, it's so typical of that Burroughs' action scenes are exciting. He always does that. But I just wanted to particularly mention that the trip over the mountains uh, with fighting the weather and the encounter with cave bears and the fight with the Tarek in the Mayhem Arena are both superb action scenes. They're suspenseful. They're exciting. They're well-described. They're well-choreographed in terms of how the action unfolds. Uh, It's just great stuff, and I think they are highlights of the first third of the book. That, that, is, that is really a great point, and I'm glad you said that because you know, I, I can summarize and talk about these things all day long and all night long, and I'd love to do that. But the only way to really give them justice is to actually read, read those passages word for word. Yes, because uh, Burroughs tells exciting stories, and he, his word choice and his rhythm and his pacing, sentence rhythm and his pacing are all beautiful. He was just, it's what makes him the best storyteller of the 20th century. Uh, well, so, well said. so you just got to read his stuff. Yep. So Scott, you were gonna you were gonna talk about chapters six through ten. Yeah. Then I'm actually gonna piggyback a little off of the remarks you you guys just offered too, because uh, 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 I'll do the chronological following through the chapters here uh, to give the basic uh, storyline there. But I got some observations to go with it. One of them, uh, a couple of them, deal with the. Uh, idea of the stories and the coincidences you know he uh, takes his characters and they cross paths an awful lot for different uh, um, plot moments like uh, uh, going off to Iron Mole or uh, making a wide circle to get to another kingdom but he sets up enough characters because <laughs> These chapters, like your chapters, there's a lot of people and there's a lot of adventure. But he sets up many times where someone's going off one way and someone is another and they cross paths with someone who ends up coming back there. So it's conceivable in a place of several hundred miles where uh, people could run across like that. Uh, An example of my own life uh, in the 80s, I, uh, I had a neighbor down in San Antonio, Texas, and we lived in the same barracks. And so we were in the Air Force. So there, part of this is, if you want to call it coincidence, makes sense because in military, again, you're smart of a smaller uh, uh, world or microcosm. But <clears throat> as I had just got in, and he's like my first neighbor in the uh, Air Force. His room was right next to mine. And he left about two, three months after I got there and uh, uh, got stationed orders to go other places. About three, three and a half years later, uh, I'm in a house in Song Tong Sea, about an hour south of Seoul, uh, outside Osan Air Base, which is a town of 100,000 people. And... The same guy turns out to be my neighbor in the house. <laughs> in this neighborhood. That's I mean, funny. 
he also there's setups like he might okay these guys guys are military so it's possible they could beat again mm -hmm. but just see that seems almost if you put that in a book too too convenient to put that into into a story yeah. that oh they lived on one half of the world and just knew each other because they were neighbors and ended up being neighbors on the other side of the world <laughs> uh, you know, three years later. So, you know, all, all those functions in real life can play play into this. Mm -hmm. And he also, <clears throat> uh, I think it's real important, I'm going to read the first paragraph here from chapter 6, which is called A Pendant World. The Mayors sent me free as they had promised but with strict injunct injunctions never to approach Futra or any other Mayhar city. They also made it perfectly plain that they considered me a dangerous creature and that having wiped the site clean insofar as they were under obligations to me, they now considered me fair prey. Should I again fall into their hands, they intimated it would, not, it would go ill with me. A lot of writers would have had like a page and a half of conversation. The head mayor talking to him saying, uh, we we have uh, taken care of you now and we've kept our part and you can go on and David going, well, I appreciate them, etc., etc." And then them going, and if we ever catch you again, we'll kill you. You know, could have all this long conversation and you just have David here as the narrator boxing it up and, and uh, doing a quick, easy summary that brings the full nature and environment of that uh, part of his journey uh, together with it doesn't leave you any doubt about what's going on where it's going yeah that, that's part of uh, Burroughs mastery of pacing a story quickly and still telling the story well he did that better than anybody else uh, he the stories would always move along quickly and uh, but he would always give you all the information you needed to know what was going on yeah mm -hmm. and, and another thing he does uh, and you can pick up a <laughs> hundred books on writing in, in Barnes and Noble or mm. Amazon or wherever you might get books from. Uh, but he incorporates things. You know, he he may have in school learned some stuff about uh, uh, literary uh, uh, tactics and uh, and uh, story structure and stuff like that. I'm sure he had to pick up something somewhere. But it seems he had a natural gift that if you took 95% of these books and, and screenplays, he does what they are teaching people in these books and in your college courses now. You got a character. He goes out on a mission. Something happens where now he really has to do a mission. Then he falls into some danger, but he works his way out of it. Then falls in some danger again, works that way out of it. It looks like they're going to have a clear passage. Then something dynamic really happens. <laughs> and now they got to move on a different course they weren't expecting, and they got to solve that. And now they're in a place where, as you said, just could it get any worse? <laughs> and and then, then he brings it up and and resolves it, and it all just ties and flows together so so well. Mm -hmm. um, really glad we have his books. <laughs> yes. So, so in, the, in the chapter here. A pendant world. He uh, is released by the Mayhars and ends up uh, going to uh, Sari again, Sari, <laughs> and um, uh, 
finding out about the devastation that's going on throughout uh, the tribes and kingdoms uh, because of Ahuja and the uh, uh, bad stuff he, he's doing. He really is a mean, not a good person. Mm -hmm. And um, so in order, they want to bring uh, tribes together and how are they going to do this? And uh, they're going to send off uh, uh, warriors to get Abner back and bring the supplies they have uh, for weapons and communications and all that uh, back to the village here and get him ready. In the meantime, uh, David wants to go and find Diane the Beautiful and he's itching to go. Meantime, uh, a, a warrior from uh, Thuria, actually a prince, his dad's the king of, of, of Thuria, is uh, our chief. Um, his name is Coke. <laughs> and I keep thinking of Korak every time I see his name. <laughs> oh, Korak's in this. No, he isn't. Um, uh, and uh, he says, yes, they want to offer services and help with fixing this too. But David's been gone a while, and a lot of people don't know him in the kingdom, so he gives them a token to take with that his dad will recognize and allow him to be uh, safe and to be there and uh, talk with them and help band their help together in that area and, and move on. And then he uh, heads out uh, uh, on the journey. He wants to both bring the tribes together, but also do it as a way to travel through try and find Diane and then he comes to the what's called the land of the awful shadow and this I think would be incredible I, I'd love to see this in a movie or TV series <laughs> like when they talk about John Carter being a new series or you know and and uh, not getting into discussion of good or bad I love the John Carter movie myself but uh, for the most part uh, uh, about that on Disney uh, I happened to be out on Disney Wiki earlier, and uh, they mentioned Pellucidor in there, in some of the ERB uh, trademarks or signatures and all that, which made me wonder, uh, there is talk that they might be doing something like a, uh, um, what am I thinking of here? Uh, like a pollution, like that's something I mean, you know, I've seen on some of their posts and in our groups and stuff where uh, they've talked about the possibility of, of uh, like a TV series, yeah, on, on this, on the, yeah. So, so they mentioned this stuff about pollution and different things in there, which made it interesting. Saying well, they've kind of put this onto a sidecar with little extra information. Um, because it related to the animated Legend of Tarzan that Disney had on their channel for many uh, years. And please, release that so we can see, <laughs> see that series. There's, there's an episode where one of the characters is ERB, and it's, it is such a cool episode. <clears throat> but to get back on your story, this planet floating here, rotating, within the inner world. I tried to picture that in my head and had a really hard time just, you know, uh, <laughs> taking this hollow world, and there's actually another planet floating up, up mm -hmm. there. 
and I was trying to imagine in my head, and of course, it uh, keeps a, a, a permanent shadow mm -hmm. down on the area down there, which uh, for that and the part where he um, uh, go, goes to sleep, he also looks at it as being an area where he could maybe, it's high up, maybe base uh, communication, telegraphic communication or wire system mm -hmm. from there to connect the tribes together. But um, he ends up going to sleep, and when he wakes up, two things he runs into. One is somebody's come through and stolen his stuff. And another one is that there is a pack of, uh, uh, if I got this pronounced right, hyena dogs. Mm -hmm. So like giant hyenas or a cross between a wolf dog and a hyena. So now he has no weapons and he's got some angry dogs there. He takes off running. Now, think of this. This is still in the shadows and stuff. And he runs up to a cliff uh, where the sea is uh, uh, down below and ends up jumping from that and ends up in this uh, uh, sort of like a canyon or I think they actually use the word uh, fjord in there and one of the dogs have jumped up and bit into him and followed him down uh, into the water. So I was just thinking the atmosphere and environment is just begging for this to be on. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, he gets to land and he sees the uh, uh, Hyenodon still coming towards him, and then he realizes that uh, he's bracing himself for an attack or how to fight him back. Realizes that uh, the dog is wounded and going under and may not make it to shore. And he dives in and helps helps this animal there. Uh, it's completely exhausted, can't do anything for him. And now here's this part about uh, uh, David uh, again having a heart where. He finds the materials to uh, set the dog's leg, broken leg, and uh, uh, put it on there. And in this area and, and uh, uh, a little further on, Burroughs has uh, David ruminating about uh, domestic beasts and dogs and pets and how they develop. And it's really, I don't think it could have been written by someone who did love animals, didn't have pets or pet dogs or cats. Yeah. It, insight into their actions and what we sometimes talk about, how smart they are, but they don't have a human intelligence, but how they react according to their circumstances and that they can have something that is, is like when you uh, have a pack of wolves where they're a family and they have uh, different offices or different rankings mm -hmm. and, and favoritism and uh, can be protected by others. It's it's really stepping away from all the battles and stuff really helps you get to know some of the thoughts and, and uh, where he's coming from and, and uh, giving sort of like evidence uh, in a trial. This is how it could happen or why. Mm -hmm. I think he does an excellent job of doing that. Yeah, and I, this is a theme that we see in other Burroughs novels where what the hero shows kindness to a wild animal and the animal befriends him because of that. Um, and there's a mini podcast on our site where I talk about this. Uh, it happens again in a later Pellucidor book with, uh, uh, is it Von Horst from? Uh, yes, uh, yes, Back to the Stone Age. Yes, he actually yeah, well, you know, where he pulls a thorn out of a mammoth's foot and later it befriends him. 
as here yeah. we have the hyena dawn eventually prevent pre uh, befriending David because David shows kindness to it. And it's a, it's a theme he, uh, you can tell Burroughs is a dog lover and an animal lover from these scenes and that he knows that if you treat an animal with kindness, you will earn its loyalty. And that's what we see here. A, a footnote, if I may, on that uh, back to the Stone Age about the mammoth described. It's that was Von Horst, one of my favorite stories. It was um, the mammoth was named Old White. Mm -hmm. and he is uh, he is the principal character in this in the story. Comes into play several times. Significant does perform significant acts. And, and the uh, there's a tribe in Pluster called the Mammoth Men. They specialize in training mammoths. That's what they do. Uh, they had tried for years to capture the well, years. But they tried for a long time to capture Old White. They finally got him, and uh, they tried to train him, and he baited them, and then I think killed a couple people that were trying training. And the Mammoth Men finally washed their hands and said, "It can't be done." And then Von Horst, who had already attended to the animal when he was ailing, uh, Von Horst and Old White became great friends. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. And if I remember right, I think is in the land that time forgot. Uh, uh, one character had it, a dog he loved too. Was it an Airedale or Greyhound or something like yeah, that? Yeah, Nobs the Airedale. Yeah. And uh, 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 John Carter had the Callet uh, Woola, and uh, Tarzan eventually had the Golden Lion. So it's it is a common theme. Yeah, it's a it's a good one. I like it. I enjoy it. So this is uh we been talking here we'd actually jumped in here chapter seven from flight to flight with the uh, dogs attacking them and <clears throat> they spend some time on this beach because he doesn't really know how to get around these cliffs and get out of the water eating a lot of uh, 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 shellfish and, and uh, that type of diet to get by and then uh, he wakes up uh, one day and the uh, uh, finds himself being held down by another man. There's several uh, people from another tribe there. They're, uh, uh, whether they're going to kill him or take him captive, we're not sure. But he's able to, he has some martial art type uh, awareness or whatever. So he's able to put the one guy down. He'd already made a stone knife, so he has that. And then uh, the other guys didn't see that the Hyanodon is sleeping over by the cliff. And he comes to David's rescue. What I thought was interesting here, sounds gory, but he doesn't give a lot of more detail on it, where he talks about after a fight's done and one of the men that uh, the Ianodon uh, uh, killed then uses him for food. Because all he's been around, they begin to some of this shellfish. So he eats the guy. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, and that's part of that whole rumination where he's talking about the uh, you know, it came to my mind about, about the animals. Well, that's what a wild animal would do. <laughs> it's not necessarily a horror movie. That's, that's what would happen. And also, he uh, names the dog, or Iana down, over a, a dog he lost on the surface world and calls him Raja. And so he feels really tight with him now, or as tight as he could at the time, realizing what kind of animal and then they, uh, so he finds their boat and they get away from that area and uh, he, he's joined by Raja in, in the canoe and they head out and he's going to go to, um, uh, let's see, where, 
this is where he's uh, heading over to the Thurians, uh, where uh, uh, the uh, prince or the young warrior came there, where is that's the chief. And he gets in there, and people are kind of interested and wary of, of him coming in with a hyenodon like that. And he actually had uh, worked with it so that he's able to have it on like a, a rope or a leash. But uh, he goes up, and, and uh, Chief's name there is Gort. And he says, I have proof who I am, why I'm here to show you. But he finds that when his weapons, everything were else was stolen, the bill bag that he had the token in from the sun is not there. Um, that tribe is fairly peaceful where they say, uh, we, we're not going to kill you, but we don't want you to stay here because we think you're uh, with Uja and, and part of that group. And we just don't want you here. So he's turned away from them there. And then uh, as he's continuing to travel because he wants to get to the area where he thinks he can find uh, Diane, he ends up being captured by these eight men. Uh, this is a pretty interesting part. Uh, the figures are about seven feet tall and very wide, weighing about a ton. The body of like a great ape or a gorilla, but a face like a sheep. Uh, maybe a ram, I don't know, but uh, that's an interesting combination. And they have a primitive language that he's able to understand. <coughs> and they take him to their chief, who's called, oh, I'm sorry, Meantime, the night, the day before, whatever, uh, when he woke up, the Hyanodon uh, was sleeping next to him, and they looked eye to eye, and then uh, Hyanodon got up to leave and went, took off into the forest, the jungle, and, and uh, uh, David mourns a little bit about that because he doesn't come back when he's on the journey uh, at this point here. And then, uh, yeah, so... And they also have people who they work in an agricultural society and uh, work with fairly primitive tools. But they have some of their own people working out there, like the chief's uh, son here, Gurgur Gur, or Gurgur Gur, uh, however you want to call it. It's GR GR GR. I love that name, Gurgur Gur. That's like one of my favorite names. Yeah, it fits with the idea of them being gorillas and maybe talking that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, they say, well, we don't know whether to trust you or not, so you will work our fields for us. And some of the people, uh, some of the workers of the field are like uh, black apes, uh, uh, much different than these gorilla type looking. Yeah, whether they're prisoners from a more primitive tribe, but also some are people who have been captured working there, and, and some of the local people work there like they might a chain gang or working in fields or penalties for breaking a law within their own area at that time. Uh, one thing about bringing in uh, the gorillas and, and ape creatures like he does here, I saw a very interesting documentary about a year ago. And this was for uh, chimpanzees, I believe it's chimpanzees in, uh, I'll say Borneo, but somewhere in, in uh, Indian Ocean or South Pacific or Thailand or, or someplace where this uh, group of scientists 
were watching and monitoring and filming, uh, I think it was three tribes of chimpanzees uh, for about three years. And they found out they each had a, a very implicit border or territory or circle that they lived within. Um, they also found where one, uh, each, uh, of course, had a chief or a, a had a lead chimpanzee who, who had, was a ranking member. And they would go to the edge of their perimeters and spy and try and sneak around and spy and see what the other ones are doing. And if they found one alone, they would go in and kill it. So it's very interesting because you've seen some of this primitive warfare here uh, um, with it, uh, going on that they've proven this happening with uh, uh, through chimpanzees. I thought that was just it was a fascinating. I can't remember what the title <laughs> of it is. Really, it's National Geographic or someone put out. It is uh, incredible. I, the intelligence or whatever their thought process was it was, uh, you know, they even have, you know, you've seen other things where they have primitive tools and stuff. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Burroughs rights in here has been proven in one way or another to be plausible. That's kind of neat. I would actually bet that Burroughs would have never expected that. Uh, but but it is it is oh, awful neat. So. It really is. Uh, so he ends up working there as a slave and... Uh, they said, we find out you are with uh, Uja, because they hate Uja, too. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll have you finish the field and then kill you. So he keeps replanting weeds in the field. <laughs> so have a longer time to work the field. <laughs> and they don't catch on. So I thought that was pretty cool. <clears throat> then the uh, there's a group of uh, from uh, Uja's people who are coming to attack them. And they're climbing up a cliff and sees uh, uh, the army, the warriors for Gerger, the Gerger, <laughs> like dropping down a rope and yanking these guys up on a noose while they're climbing up. The people climbing up down below will stop and shoot arrows up. So both sides are taking hits. He goes over then by uh, the Gerger, David does, and, and kind of shows them, forces them like, see this here, and starts rolling boulders off them. and so they go right over the cliff and drop down and start hitting these guys and suddenly uh, he, he's like turns to Gregor and his other ones and everyone just start throwing the rocks over the side because there's a big rock pile there well they end up defeating the army does never does make it up front there and that's another thing <laughs> it seemed here and we'll see an instance I'll be talking about shortly after this uh, where people are climbing these cliffs you, you, you know, that's a, that's a big, uh, uh, what, what is the word, a risk sport or what they call it, where people are climbing, you know, like in Yosemite and other place, places, cliffs, foot and hang, doing uh, uh, rebelling like you do in traditional mountain climbing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's freehand rock climbing where you're just climbing without pitons and ropes and such. So. Yeah. That's for those who like to live dangerously. It, I mean, is, really. it definitely is. Yeah, so they, um, uh, so that's that's plausible too. That's just there's so many things I was reading in here and went through my head. I'm like, well, that that works. Mm -hmm. They also have what they uh, 
call when they describe an animal they're able to use as a work animal in this village. Uh, first thing I thought of was brontosaur. I know I should say apatosaur. Uh, uh, well, you know, the <laughs> uh, brontosaurus doesn't use that often anymore. But yeah. he says uh, uh, the doctor or Abner Perry would say uh, it was a uh, diplodocus. Diplodocus, I believe, yes. Diplodocus, thank you. Yeah, I love dinosaurs, but the name's so <laughs> And it was Apatosaurus was the other word you were looking for. So. Oh, yes, thank you, Apatosaurus, yes. That's, and, that's, that's, that's why I prefer the Pelucidarian names. I can almost say those. <laughs> <laughs> so they're showing that they have this group of uh, uh, domestic and agricultural society. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and there are people who say, well, you know, primitive people or etc., etc. Some of that stuff's too far beyond them, or whether you, you go into uh, evolution or awareness or, or learning to use weapons and tools. But uh, a lot of people forget or maybe don't know because it wasn't promoted much when I was in school in history. But the early, if you want to call them the First Nations, or early North Americans, uh, Indian tribes. <coughs> the uh, uh, Cherokee, or the Cree, uh, down in the southwest, southeast area of the United States, were agricultural so, uh, societies. Mm -hmm. They actually had huts, homes, like thatch uh, houses instead of teepees and stuff like that. And they had gardens and fields and one of the big things that ruined their society was uh, uh, the feral pigs that came out of the ones the Spaniards brought over with them that got away and repopulated uh, the area there. They'd go and destroy their crops. They had no way really to stop them from coming in at night and digging all those up. But an agrarian society like that is very believable uh, when you look at take that in context. Yeah. So, and I, oh, I, I was going to say that David also recognizes this as a huge deal because none of the human tribes he had met did agriculture. And now these yes. beast men do, and he realizes that if they're eventually a part of his empire and they can pass that knowledge on, then, uh, then, then lifting the Pellucidor humanity out of the Stone Age will be that much easier. Yep, yep. And that's a good point. And he has those little sides, and they're not boring. He, mm -hmm. he only spends like a half a page or a page, maybe a page and a half, mm -hmm. talking about it and, and putting that scene in your mind. But it, uh, again, it's exposition without being boring, and it fills in some of the action time. It's just, uh, I think, the genius of his writing. So they, they allow him, they said, uh, uh, we didn't believe you, we're sorry, we're ashamed that you do hate Huja as much as, as we do. And um, what can we give you? And he said, my freedom. And he said, you have it. And they help a uh, uh, group of them leave and help them get down to a certain point where they turn back and give them a general idea where he might uh, uh, find Diane. And in this uh, point, he finds a way up this again, watching other people. One is through a tunnel people go up in, but he knows he'll be seen right away doing that. So he ends up seeing two others along an ocean area uh, climb a cliff. So he kind of finds their path on how they do, like you're saying, uh, but three-handed or, or whatever. 
climb up and get there. Then he, he runs into another person up there when he's crawling along, trying not to be seen, uh, Juog. But remember, right, when he's talking about finally, uh, he, he, this is another thing about his character and nature. He said, I had him down with my hands on his throat and on his air pipe. I didn't want to kill him in cold, cold blood, but I can't let him go because <laughs> it makes the alarm. And then the, he, he uh, rele releases him a, a little bit. And the guy goes, you, I recognize you. I saw you uh, <laughs> fighting in, in, uh, with the Mayhars. So I think it's a part with the... Uh, Fighting uh, the uh, Tagar, uh, uh, Tarug, yeah. yeah. So I think that's where this guy came in. He had escaped from them, or had been allowed to leave. No, he he had fought in battle in the arenas to finally get out of there. So I didn't know if that was recent or or you know at first if he's actually referring back to a previous. Uh, book, but well, the the weird way time moves in Pellucidor, you know, who knows. Yeah, which he also addressed uh, back when he's in the, the land of the uh, shadows. And when he's talking about communications here, they could watch the revelation of that small planet and create a time signature to go by. Mm -hmm. Elucidar and introduce uh, time that way. So it's amazing how will will civilize will they work better under time work or. <laughs> Not, you know, um, uh, those are all interesting things he brings up. Mm -hmm. He ends up, anyway, that guy tells him about where he can find Diane, and he gets in there, and she's being taken by a, another guard to um, uh, where Huja uh, uh, is. Mm -hmm. And she's not, she starts fighting with him because she says, No, I'm not going to go to that island and, and marry him. And he breaks through the wall, you know, he says, Probably the. Uh, most awkward moment any chief <laughs> ever did falling through the wall like that, but fights with the guy and is able to uh, uh, free Diane from him. And uh, so Diane and David are together. She didn't realize who he was in the dark in the cave caverns where they're fighting. Um, and she goes, "Who are you? Why? Why did you take him out?" And it's like, "Diane, it's me, David." Mm -hmm. Of course, they fall into each other's arms. And, oh, leave it at that point. Uh, yep, and that was uh, that was the end of chapter ten, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Or chap yeah, cha yeah. Mm -hmm. chapter ten, the right cave. Yeah. yeah. So they uh, they kind of reconnect with Gion, the other guy, and. Uh, at one point, in order to get away, David has to make this incredible dive off of a really high cliff, um, which which is just another well-described action scene because, you know, Burroughs, David stresses how dangerous it is, and he's never made a dive that high before. But if he doesn't do it, he's going to get caught or killed, and he's just got to. Um, so, so he makes that dive. He, Dion, and Giant uh, uh, get away. Uh, but... Uh, Dion's main talent might be getting kidnapped on a regular basis because she's soon kidnapped by a Thurian riding a, a Diplodocus, what they call a Lidai. Uh, in the meantime, uh, uh, you know, David is reconnected with Raja, the hyena don, who brings his mate along. So he's now got two hy hyena dons and his new friend Gion. 
and the four of them track down this Liddy, this Diplodocus that the that Dion is being Dia, uh, that Diane is being carried away on, and there's a that's another great action scene is the way the uh, the hyena the hyena Don heard the heard the dinosaur and eventually take it down and kill the guy who was kidnapping Diane and she's rescued yet again. Um, I'm not sure that Burroughs thought about the size difference in this, how big a 120-foot-long Diplodocus is compared to a couple of uh, hyenodons. But uh, I forgive that because the action scene is just so cool. Well, perhaps if the, if the dogs don't, uh, are able to get a vital spot, uh, yeah. a blood vessel, the neck area perhaps, but something that's, that's uh, shall we say, tender, yeah. uh, they... They might be able to do some damage. There's, yeah, there's probably ways you could rationalize it. Um, it's not a, it's not a, it's just something I noted. It's not really, really a complaint because the action scene's too fun for that. Um, there's. Uh, uh, Excuse I, me, if I may jump in real quick. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The uh, before I forget, before we move on, the uh, scene where David is taking that dive off the cliff, mm-hmm. that was beautifully captured by Joe Jusco as part of his colossal hard set. Mm-hmm. They came out, uh, I think, in the uh, mid-90s, perhaps. Uh, that particular uh, colossal card is called Neanderthal Pursuit, and it shows David making a dive feet first. That would be something worthy of Johnny Weissnower, my pro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I know that illustration. It's a wonderful one. Um, anyway, there, we're uh, getting a little long, so I'm going to summarize the last chapters very quickly. Um, David and his friends end up in a canoe being chased by Huja and his army in a in a fleet of canoes. But they are, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on leading up to this. But the, it ends with, uh, with Abner and a fleet of ships that he's had built armed with cannon and they're armed with muskets. So they come in and they just slaughter Huja and his forces. Um, and uh, this is really the introduction of modern technology into Pellucidor, which is a total game changer. Um, because from there, they are able to finally defeat the Mayhers using modern explosives. Uh, they, and they start forming the Empire. It's, so there are some tribes of humans that are hostile to them, but David's a very wise ruler. When he has to fight them after he defeats them, he guarantees their autonomy and their freedom and offers them to become uh, you know, offers them an alliance to become a part of the empire with it, all its advantages. Uh, and while he's doing all this fighting in chapter, uh, the end of chapter 10, or the, uh, sorry, the end of chapter 14, he makes a great speech to uh, Perry. He says, that's the day I'm looking forward to when you and I could build sewing machines instead of battleships, harvesters of crops instead of harvesters of men. Plowshares and telephones, schools and colleges, printing presses and paper. When our merchant marines shall ply the great Pellucidorian seas, and cargoes of silks and typewriters and books shall forge their way where only hideous Saurians have held sway since time began. So these final battles, they're all curb stop battles because David now has a navy and an army with, with uh, gunpowder weapons. Nobody stands a chance. But the battles are exciting and well described. And the thematic purpose of this is that David has now successfully introduced uh, technology into the world, but he doesn't want to use it just for war. He'll use it until he can form a peaceful empire, and then he'll start introducing uh, uh, liter- literature and 
uh, agricultural st uh, stuff and communications into the world, all to improve uh, Pellucidorian life. And uh, so he has an end game that's very honorable. And he's not just mindlessly slaughtering stuff, people. He's fighting when he has to, to get to, uh, for a greater purpose. Uh, and I think it's, that's the theme of him using technology, whether anything from a compass to a revolver, all through the novel leads up to his desire to use technology to make, uh, to make uh, a life better for mankind in Pellucidor. And, it, and it's a theme that ties the whole novel together uh, in, in, uh, in a way that, it, in addition to the, just the plot and the action and all that, that I think is, is actually has some depth to it. It's really very neat. Mm -hmm. uh, it offers hope for the future. It does. And it ends up with uh, all this stuff being introduced to Pellucidor. He sets up telegraphs. Uh, he sets up a printing press. People begin to learn to read. Um, um, so you've got this real hope for the future. Uh, I couldn't help think when I was reading this of David's attitude towards using tech, introducing technology to make life better with Tarzan's attitude that I'd rather be in the jungle and all this technology stuff annoys me. And it's kind of uh, interesting to compare those two Burroughs uh, characters and their differing attitudes towards technology. So, um, uh, but, uh, you know, that's the end of the novel. It, it's it really at the Earth's core in Pellucidor is one long story. And it ties up, it doesn't end the, the adventures in Pellucidor. Burroughs is going to revisit it for, I think, a total of five more novels. But um, he's going to have Tarzan visit there once and so on. But that's the end of this story, with Burroughs successfully uh, forming his empire, chasing the Mayhers away. He knows they still exist somewhere else on Pellucidor, and they could be a danger to s again. But they're gone as the main villains from the series. And forming and beginning to introduce technology and lift up humanity out of the Stone Age. And it's a very satisfying not, uh, ending to a very exciting story. Well said. Yes. Um, and, uh, well, that's it for Pellucidor. Unless you, do you guys have anything else to add? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, uh, just, uh, it's been a while since I'd gone through it. And it was really enjoyable. It is. It's, it's a fun series. Um, and uh, we should mention that there is an online comic strip by, written by Chuck Dixon, uh, which is set, its original story set in Pellucidor. Very exciting stories with great artwork. I'm afraid I'm blanking on who the artist is. Um, but it's, but it, it's, it is my favorite of the online web comics uh, based on Edgar Rice Burroughs' work. It is currently my favorite. It's really superb strip. Chuck Dixon is an excellent writer. Mm -hmm. He is. I really enjoy it. My favorite character in that comic strip is Daniel, mm -hmm. who is uh, David Ennis' son. And I've mentioned this before, but the bears repeating, Daniel had a pet Thiftar for a long time. The bird eventually got killed. But uh, they were best buddies, and they went everywhere. And in more recent panels, uh, he has a pet saber tooth called Kitty. Mm -hmm. And that cat has some of the most humorous expressions and poses <laughs> that I've ever seen of an animated uh, of cat. Yeah. And uh, I think the last installment where we saw David, he was taming and riding a giant vampire bat. So, yes. uh, so, so it, is, it is just a fun strip. And Dixon is a great writer who uh, understands Burroughs' world. He's true to the characters. His characterizations are great. His action is great. Um, 
he was he was a favorite comic book writer of mine when he was doing Batman and then later G.I. Joe. And uh, uh, I loved his run on Robin. Mm-hmm. That's really what I got to know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm just glad he's he's available to do a Burroughs strip. And, and it's well worth reading. Um, and I guess that's it for here. Uh, we'll be scheduling hopefully another episode soon where we're going to be listening to an episode of the 1951 uh, radio series with Lamont Johnson as Tarzan and analyzing that and talking about it. So um, um, I'm looking forward to that one. I think it'll be fun. We'll have to yeah. decide on exactly what episode. I'll send you guys some suggestions soon. Uh, and that's it for now, unless anybody else has anything to add or anything they want to plug. Well, I will note that the artist for the webcomic, the ERB webcomic, The Loosener, mm-hmm. at com slash comics. That artist is Gary Wapsitz. K-W-A-P-I-S-Z. And I know I butchered the name, but I was tempted to give some credit because it is indeed fine artwork. Yes, and I and I have to apologize for blanking on his name earlier because he is an excellent write, uh, artist and his work does, deserves to be recognized. Um uh, yeah of the ERB strips now online mm-hmm. by all writers and uh, artists it is just incredible. Uh, it is. Uh, I like it over a lot. I wish, I know they got some my things about uh, rights or copyrights or whatever. I hope someday I'd love to see it in print because uh, I prefer it over most everything else I see on the shelves. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice if they collected some of these into print volumes. And who knows, maybe one day. So, okay, so anyway, my name again is Tim DeForest. Uh, You can visit my author page at Amazon.com and see links to my books and hopefully buy them. Uh, One of my books uh, called Radio by the Book has recently become available in a Kindle version, so it's available that way as well. And uh, uh, if you want to visit my blog, it's comics, old-time radio, and other cool stuff. Um, Jess and Scott, you guys want to plug anything else before we go? Well, I've got to mention my... uh Facebook discussion group together with Lilla Pop where we talk Edgar Rice Girls 24-7 with over 4,000 members but we have room for plenty more come join us for the love of all things Edgar Rice Girls for the love of all things Edgar Rice Girls on Facebook with Lilla Pop and yours truly okay uh, say thank you to everyone for joining us and listening mm-hmm. yeah thank you again and uh, um, uh, we'll be back uh, hopefully before too long with episode number 11 I'll see y'all later.